What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. It is time for Friday's check-in with Reggie Cicchini, Washington correspondent for Global News. Reggie, good morning to you. Good morning. Lots to talk about today. Let's start with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and his entry into the presidential campaign. Yeah, a rocky entry into the presidential campaign, opting to forego traditional media and using a Twitter spaces conversation with billionaire Elon Musk to jump into the race. It was met uh, with delays and glitches by about half an hour, and it kind of became a bit of a punchline uh, for those who were waiting for him to make the announcement. But ultimately, look, Ron DeSantis spoke to you know the journalists on Twitter and that segment of Twitter's population that sometimes has a view further away from the center to explain why he is ultimately the person for the job in 2024, going after policies that exist under the Biden administration, uh, making veiled swipes at Donald Trump. This is before he then went on Fox News about an hour later. But this is a big deal because he is now essentially the number two in the race, even though his you know polling numbers still pale in comparison to where Trump is right now. Right. Uh, but still early. And uh, I know lots uh, of, of response to not only the rocky start, as you said, uh, on Twitter, but uh, what we can expect in the coming days and weeks. Yeah, I, I mean, look, the, the, the U.S. election is still 75 weeks away, so there's plenty of time for either Ron DeSantis to catch up to Donald Trump or any of the other number of candidates that are trailing in single digits right now to get up to where Ron DeSantis is. The question is, does what DeSantis, uh, is what DeSantis has done in Florida over the last several months, including some really controversial policies that have been enacted, uh, it may work in Florida is there a national appetite for what Ron DeSantis uh, can, you know, can offer, particularly when it comes to something like abortion, Jill? He's really pushing through, pushing forward for a six-week abortion ban. That falls way out of line with where uh, national polling averages are. So this is going to be the test now to whether or not, you know, what works in Florida does this kind of have a ripple effect and be embraced by a more national audience. We've seen the president of Mexico urging Latino voters not to to back Governor DeSantis. How unusual, or is it that we see the, the, the Mexican president getting in or weighing in so early? I mean, look, it, it's it's pretty remarkable to have uh, a foreign government trying to not particularly interfere, but interject in another government's uh, election. Look, from the White House podium, you would never hear somebody uh, talk about, you know, an election in Canada or the U.S. other than they intend to work with whoever is uh, ultimately going to be elected. But this really does uh, mark a critical moment for how Ron DeSantis has treated the immigration issue, because, look, it is a, he is partly to blame uh, for some of those political stunts that saw uh, migrants not only bust out of state, but also flown into other parts of the United States. And he's also enacted some incredibly strong um, immigration policies in Florida that essentially, in some cases, make it illegal for a bus driver or a subway driver to transport um, you know, someone whose immigration status is in question from one point to another. So you know, it's not surprising to hear the Mexican president come out with these kinds of, of comments. The question is, is it going to resonate with a state where the, the Latin population, the Latino population really has been gravitating towards the Republican Party?
Yeah, well, it's, uh, we'll certainly be interested, interesting to watch. And like you said, still many, many weeks uh, to look forward to more happening there. I wanted to ask you as well about some pretty lengthy sentences. And these are related to the group, the so-called Oath Keepers uh, from January 6th. Yeah, uh, Steve uh, Stuart Rhodes, rather, uh, a, a, a you know Ivy League school graduate, uh, was sentenced to uh, I believe it was sixteen or eighteen years in prison all after being indicted for seditious conspiracy. And this all goes back to the uh, riots that took place at the U.S. Capitol. This is the longest sentence that has been handed out. Uh, uh, counterpart was also handed uh, twelve years uh, for Kelly Meggs, a co-defendant from the Florida chapter of the Oath Keepers. And essentially, what you have the judge saying is that. Uh, you're not a political prisoner here. You are the one who ultimately incited this violence uh, and, and the unrest that took place at the U.S. Capitol. And, and the judge called this person an ongoing threat and a peril to the United States and its democracy. I think the, the kind of question to look down the road at, Jill, is, well, you know, there's going to be an appeal process. You've heard candidates like Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis say that they would potentially issue a pardon to people that they believe were treated improperly who took part in the riot. Now, Stuart Rhodes didn't take part. He was not in uh, or around the Capitol at the, at the time. He was just charged, you know, with, with trying to get the ball rolling here. But do these prison sentences stick, considering Republicans have really tried to make these people out to be political prisoners? Yeah, and I, I thought it was interesting, too, that uh, was that the prosecution was actually asking for 25 years, uh, but still 18 seems like a pretty hefty sentence. Yeah, and it, it's worth pointing out that, you know, this is, you know, roughly a one of a thousand cases that have been pushed through uh, the courts since January 6th. And a lot of the sentences have come down less than what has been requested, but above what the sentencing guidelines would be and I think that it really shows that these uh, these judges some of which you know have different background uh, different political backgrounds from each other are all taking the threat that was posed to American democracy on January 6th the exact same right well we'll still be uh, watching that uh, for sure uh, Reggie what about talks uh, regarding the debt ceiling because I know people here are watching that seeing what kind of an impact it might have on Canada as well but what's happening with that so look the the, the US deputy uh, US deputy Treasury secretary just a couple of hours ago made comments that negotiations are moving closer towards a deal. We heard that from the White House yesterday. We've heard that from negotiators on the Republican side in the House. The issue is close isn't a deal. And without a deal, a default is likely going to happen when the U.S. essentially runs out of money to pay its bills. Uh, and this is a big deal because, A, it could throw the U.S. into recession. It could tank the markets. That would tank the Canadian markets. It would leave the possibility open for Canada to tip into a recession. The, the issue when it comes to this deal, Jill, is what concessions are being made. Republicans want to see less spending. Democrats want to see, um, you know, an increased ability to go after and roll back the tax breaks that were given to uh, wealthy people and to corporations. But the furthest parts of each party are going to be angry if concessions were made. They're going to see it as negotiating with the devil, uh, you know, it, to, to, to use a, a phrase there. And does this put kind of political pressure or leave in political jeopardy Kevin McCarthy or or Joe Biden for making some kind of a deal? Either way, there's only six days to go before the U.S. runs out of money. Lawmakers are now on a break. They're going to have to come back. They're going to have to review. They're going to have to vote. So even if a deal is reached, it's still really in flux as to what happens if this goes beyond June 1st. Uh, so really, I mean, both sides have to compromise. Is it looking at it in the optics of who's compromising more? more? 
Yeah, uh, realistically, it's, it's a who's going to blink first thing. The White House has said for, for weeks, if not months, let's leave the, the conversation over raising the debt ceiling independent from the budget. We can talk about the budget, but essentially the debt ceiling is to borrow money for things that we have already spent. Uh, and, and concessions from the Republicans, you know, they say, well, look, raising the debt ceiling is our concession. Democrats have hit back to say you are essentially putting the livelihoods of Americans and people around the world at risk by tying everything towards what we may spend in the future. Uh, if the White House ultimately, you know, wins on this, but there's concessions on their side, that's going to be a big issue for progressive Democrats. And that could put Joe Biden, who's already facing low approval numbers uh, in more hot water as he runs towards 2024's re-election. All right. Lots to keep an eye on for sure. Reggie, great to chat with you this morning. Thank you. Happy Friday. Reggie Cicchini, Washington correspondent for Global News.